to work our way through this gospel for some time now. And um, I really, really, really uh, want to try to finish this chapter possible in the next few weeks. There's no way I'll get it done today that much I know. In fact, there is a portion of scripture here uh, coming up, and I'm going to, regardless of what time allows for, I, uh, if we make it that far, I'm going to stop, because once I get into that portion of scripture, I'll have to watch myself or I know I could spend a number of weeks right there. If you are looking at Mark chapter 3, uh, I'll just tell you this now, that beginning verses 20, beginning with verse 20 and going through verse 30, Jesus deals with a subject that is very, very misunderstood. And... Um, really not a lot of teaching on it. And yet, I think if there's anything that really needs to be taught, it's this. Uh, it is the subject of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. I say that it needs to be taught on because this is the one sin in the Bible that Jesus said can never be forgiven. That's the one thing that can never be forgiven. And, uh, you know, that's pretty serious. <laughs> Putting it mildly, that's pretty serious. And I, I, I'm just going to tell you, and I don't want to get into this today because, as I said, it'll take me a while to, to deal with this in its entirety, but I just want to tell you, if I were the devil, this would be the thing I'd be focusing on. If a person, if a person lies, he can find forgiveness. If he uh, steals, he can find forgiveness. He uh, goes out and gets drunk, he can find forgiveness. Now, I'm not authorizing these things, you understand. I'm not encouraging these things. I'm just saying God can forgive you for it. But if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, there is no forgiveness. So if I were the devil, that's what I would be trying to get people to do. And yet, I would dare say that many folks under the sound of my voice today really don't even know what that sin is. Now, the devil likes to tell people they've committed it so that they'll just give up. But um, that's why we need to understand what it is. And uh, so when we get there, when we get there, I'll take some time and teach on it. But it will take some time uh, for me to at least develop from the scripture. You know, I've, I've often said, I've always said to this church that when there is a passage of scripture you don't understand, what do you do? You find another scripture. You get the Bible down and you find another scripture and you connect the scriptures. Let the scripture interpret scripture. And uh, so that's what we'll do. But we're not there yet. Don't know if we'll get to that point today, but if we do, um, regardless of how early it might be, we're going to have to stop right there because it will take me a little while. And uh, if we get started into that, we'll be here 
uh, until the roast is not just burnt, but it'll just be pieces of charcoal. So, let's turn to our text, Mark chapter 10. And uh, even though we're studying chapter 3, chapter 10 really gives such a great summary of the message of Mark's gospel. And that's why each week we come back and read these few verses. It just kind of puts us once again into that perspective to understand what it is Mark was commissioned by the Holy Ghost to say in his writing. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, But Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Um, I've said it many times, because we have uh, guests here with us today, I want to just say it again. I hope that the rest of you don't get tired of hearing this, but, but it's for the sake of those who haven't heard it that I feel I must say it again. But Mark's whole purpose in writing was to show us that the one who has supreme authority did not use that authority uh, <clears throat> to command others, but he rather served others. He came to this world as a servant with the intent of being an example for the rest of us. This should be our goal. Uh, the world's goal is to reach places of prominence and power, but our goal as Christians ought to be to reach a place of service where we can spend our lives trying to help others. Well, praise God. And, and I will tell you, <clears throat> if the Lord allows and time allows, verse 45, we're going to see being put into action in chapter 3, verse 45, he said, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, or the words there in the Greek, he came not to be served by others, but he came to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we're going we're gonna to continue on. Uh, this is lesson 24 in our study of the book of Mark. And um, we are only about halfway through chapter 3, so hallelujah. Got a long road ahead of us, don't we? Let's put our Bibles down and let's lift our voices, lift our hands, lift our hearts to the Lord right now. Let's ask him to talk to us today. Can we do that, everybody? Let's ask God to speak to us today,
In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's worship him for just a moment. Everybody, let's lift him up for just a moment more before we're seated here today. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, I, I do apologize to our guests that I really feel uh, because of the time, I really don't have the time to do a lot of review on what we've covered in the book of Mark. I will tell you that if you're interested, you can stop by our sound booth after service and we will get your name and information and make a copy of all of the lessons that I've taught to this point. We'll offer that to you absolutely free of charge. We are not trying to make money off of any of this. We just want you to have the word of the Lord. So if you're interested, you can stop by and get that, and we will provide that to you at no cost. I will do enough review just to bring everyone up to speed with where we are in chapter 3, because in our last lesson, we started into uh, a new story in this chapter, and we didn't get very far into it until the presence of the Lord stepped in, and I, I offer no apologies for that. That's what we want to happen, and that's far more important to me than it is for me to finish what's written on my notes. So anytime the Lord wants to step in, that's fine, and uh, we don't apologize for that, and he did. Uh, we were just getting into the story of the calling of the Twelve. I made mention uh, last week that it's kind of hard, I think, for us to realize at this point, some, uh, what, year and a half now into the book of Mark, that we really are only in chapter 3, and the Lord's ministry is just beginning. Um, and, and so we have to keep that perspective. Things are just getting started here. And so the Lord has uh, now called the disciples to him. And so we're going to go back. Uh, we talked about some of that last week, didn't get near as far as what I wanted to. So we're going to go back and start there again today. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, and verses 14 and 15. Let's, let's read these verses together. And he ordained 12. He ordained 12. That they should be with him. Uh-huh. And that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Now there... Believe it or not, there is so much in these two verses. Um, last week where we got uh, off the, uh, the beaten path was talking about how he chose them and that he chooses us. Uh, we don't come just of our own accord. We don't just wake up one day and decide we're going to live for God. But we come because he draws us by the power of his spirit and I even went so far as to say that uh, if you're in church today, you're here because he drew you here. You didn't just decide to come. And, and I want to just again reiterate the fact that if he drew you, he didn't do it so that he could then just cut you off. 
If he drew you, it's because he loves you and he still has a plan for your life. Well, praise God. Now, uh, I don't want to go back through all that, but there is so very much here, and I'm going to try to, to deal with some of these things here this morning. Um, first of all, first of all, before we go any farther, I want to just go back and look at uh, the number of men that he ordained. He ordained 12. This is not an accident, and nor is it a coincidence that he would choose 12. There is a very specific reason, and, and I'm not into uh, biblical numerology a lot. Some folks uh, kind of, uh, we used to say, go to seed on things like that. They go to the extreme, and they start finding messages in every number that's, that's listed. But there are some numbers that carry significance in the Scripture, and we ought to understand those numbers. For example, the number seven. Some people say that's God's perfect number. But really, when we use the word perfect, we need to use it in the biblical sense. The biblical sense of perfect is not flawless. It is complete. It's mature. And so seven in the scripture is God's number of completion. He completed the world. He actually did all the work in six days, but he included a seventh day. And so the week and the work was not really complete until the seventh day, in which time the Lord rested. And so seven is his number of completion. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to get into biblical numerology, but one is the number of God. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Three is not the number of God. One is the number of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's one Lord. One is the number of God. Six is the number of man. Man was made on the sixth day. Six is the number of man. And what you get in the number of seven is when man yields himself fully to God, then God can complete his work in mankind. Seven is the number of completion. Um, and so God told the children of Israel, march around the walls seven days. On the seventh day, do it seven times. God was saying that's what it's going to take to complete this work. Seven is the number of completion. Twelve also carries significance. Uh, Jacob had twelve sons, right? And these sons were all the heads of tribes. There are the twelve tribes of Israel. You do understand that, that when we talk about the twelve tribes, we are talking about the descendants of each of the twelve sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, prince with God. Uh, of course, um, and I don't want to get into all this. I get too sidetracked sometimes with details, I think. These kinds of things kind of intrigue me, but I think they bore everybody else. But, but um, you know, if you, read, if you read the listing of the 12 tribes, you will find that 
among those 12 tribes, you don't see the tribe of Joseph. And there's a reason for that. It's not that Joseph was overlooked. It's that Joseph was favored by his father. And Joseph took his two sons, or Jacob took Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and put them on the level with Joseph's brothers. So where Joseph's brothers each had one twelfth, Joseph got two twelfths. Hallelujah. So you'll read about the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. Even though those were not the sons of Jacob, they were the sons of Joseph, Jacob's grandsons. Now, one replaced Joseph. The other replaced Levi, who was put into a position to serve God and to serve his house. But the Levites did not get inheritances like the other tribes. Lord, I don't, I don't need to get into all this, but anyhow, be it as it may, um, they were to get a portion from everybody else's inheritance. It was called the tithe. And so each of the other tribes tithed to the Levites. And the Levites didn't have a portion of their own. They got the tithe of everyone else's portion, all right? So you didn't count the Levites among the 12 tribes, you didn't count Joseph himself among the 12 tribes. Instead, you put Manasseh and Ephraim. But anyhow, 12, 12. Um, each of these was the head of a tribe, or in some places called a prince. All right? Uh, the priest was to take 12 loaves of bread and keep 12 loaves on the table of showbread in the tabernacle or later the temple. Um, Numbers lists 12 sacrifices of animals that were to be offered. Deuteronomy lists 12 curses for disobedience. The New Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you, you, you look at the New Jerusalem, and it's amazing how, how, how could I say this, how full of 12s New Jerusalem is. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. There are 12 gates. There are, there's an angel at each gate. So there's 12 angels. Um, the walls are 12 by 12 high. 144 cubits high. 12 squared. The city is 12,000 furlongs high and 12,000 furlongs wide. The city sets on 12 foundations. And so over and over and over and over, it's 12, 12, 12, 12. Uh, 12, just like seven represents completion. One represents God. Six represents man. Uh, 12 represents authority. The Jews understood this, authority. There were 12, as I said, princes. 12 men who headed tribes. They were the men of authority. Are you with me? The New Jerusalem is the seat of God's authority. The priest was God's authority. The tabernacle housed the mercy seat. The tabernacle was the place where God used his authority 
to deal with man's sin. Twelve is the number of authority. Now, now listen, listen. It, it's and again, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I want to say this. I want to throw this out there for you. When we talk about New Jerusalem being so full of the number twelve, it is significant that God would have this city described this way because the new Jerusalem itself is a representation of something here on earth. Get for me Galatians chapter 4 verse 26. Is that not on your notes? Yeah, okay. Galatians chapter 4 verse 26. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Jerusalem above. That new Jerusalem is free. And it is the mother of us all. Now, here Paul is making an analogy to the Galatian people. And he is referencing, referencing not just the physical city of Jerusalem, but now he gives it a spiritual connotation. That spiritual Jerusalem is free. And it is the mother of us all. The spiritual Jerusalem is the church. It is the church. Now, if the new Jerusalem is the seat of God's authority in the world to come, and the church is the spiritual Jerusalem that is built like it, and it is built like it. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. Then we understand that the church is the place of God's authority on the earth. Oh God, I could, I could preach an entire message here, right here, just talking about the power that is in the church. Amen. This is, this is the place where God's authority operates. Listen, you can go to Matthew chapter 18 and you see that people a lot of times misuse the scripture. I think there's a principle there, but, but the interpretation of the scripture, when Jesus said where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, he's not talking about holding a church service. Go and study it. Go and read it. That's not what he's talking about. I do think there's a principle there because he made the blanket statement. But what he's really talking about is dealing with problems in the church. And he says, if the church comes together, he goes through a process. you got a problem with a brother. You don't talk about him. You don't run him down. You don't call somebody else. You go to him alone. Work it out with him alone. If that doesn't work, take with you one or two witnesses, not friends, not people who agree with you, but witnesses who know that this brother is wrong. They know it not because you told them he's wrong. Well, this is another lesson for another day. Help me, Jesus. But if that still doesn't work, then the Lord said, you take it before the whole church. And you let the church rule on the matter. And he said, if he still will not hear the church, then you put him out of the church and you consider him a heathen man. The church takes that authority. God, then he said, where two or three agree as touching any one thing. He's not talking about prayer. He's talking about discipline. Read it. Matthew 18. He's talking about discipline. 
If the church comes together and says, nope, this man is wrong, and they say he won't listen to anybody, he won't fix his ways, he won't stop it. Look, I don't, I don't want to get into all this, but for example, let me just talk about a situation that um, I think was handled properly some years ago. First church that I pastored, uh, the man before me had a situation he had to deal with. The church was in East Texas, and uh, especially back then in the uh, 70s and early 80s. I went there in 1984, but in the, in the late 70s, early 80s especially, there was a lot of prejudice. Now, the church had been, the church was and had been from its founding 100% white. But, but an African American family came. There were people in the church that were so full of prejudice that they literally started threatening those people. That if you ever come back, we'll kill you. Now the pastor tried to address it. They wouldn't listen. The pastor took witnesses. They wouldn't listen. The pastor then had to bring it before the church and say these people refuse to stop. They're wrong. This is not Christian. And they must be dealt with. And they would not listen to anybody. Their hatred was so intense and so extreme, nobody could talk them out of it. So he brought them before the church. And the church tried, and they wouldn't listen to the church. And so as a church, they said, you are no longer, not just not a member of this assembly, but the church, according to Matthew 18, has the authority now, now look, he, he didn't say that you'll consider him a member of another church. He said you'll consider him a heathen man. In other words, at this point, they're not even, they're not even a part of God's church anymore. And the church took that action. It's drastic. It's extreme. But you understand there's been multiple attempts to correct it before it reaches that point. Now, the, the end of the story is this. It was just a matter of, I don't know, it, it wasn't very many days, Brother Sisler, after this man was put out by the church that he was electrocuted and died. I, I believe what happens is when you're in the church, you're under the umbrella, uh, the umbrella of God's authority. And when that umbrella is taken away, the devil can do whatever he wants to do. So, so the church is the seat of God's authority on the earth. Um, oh, God, I, I didn't intend to get into all of this. I, I was going to go a totally different direction with all this, but here we are. Go over to the book of Ephesians. This is not in your notes, I know. Um, but, but I want to show you something. Um, let's, let's go to chapter 1, verse 22. Ephesians 1, let's start with 22. We're going to read 22 and 23. I want to show you something here. And hath put all things under and his put feet. Put all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet. And gave him, gave to, him be to be the head over all over things, all things to, the to the what? To the what? 
church. So the subject now is the church. Then he says, verse 23, which is his which body. is his body, the church is the body of Christ the in the earth and what? The fullness the of him, fullness that of him that filleth all in all. I'm telling you that the church, the fullness of God resides within the body of the church just like the fullness of God resided within the body of Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus. Why do I feel like I am trying to swim upstream this morning? Um, I'm not saying that each of us as individuals are just like Christ. That we have all the fullness of God in us. He had all the fullness of God in him individually. The church has the fullness of God collectively. This is why we must be part of the church. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you that when the church comes, this is why the devil wants to divide churches. If the church comes together and becomes a single unit, then all the fullness of God dwells in that body. It becomes the same as the body of Christ that walked this earth 2,000 years ago. What I'm telling you is this. If you're seeking body, if the church is just unified, if the church has really come together, if we really put aside all division and all strife and all envy, we come together. I'm telling you, in a moment of unity, the same power, the same virtue that flowed from the body of Jesus Christ will flow from the body of Jesus Christ that is called the church. I've talked about it many times, but I, I used to watch my pastor when, when he went to pray for folks. And we saw miracles in my home church, uh, miracle after miracle after miracle. You name it, we saw it. From, from, from blind eyes being opened to the dead being raised, we saw it. But I'm going to tell you, I watched something. I learned something that, that went on because I saw, I saw that same man preach in places where nothing happened. It wasn't him individually, though he was a man of great faith, and many times God honored his faith. But I'm going to tell you, I saw something. There's a reason why it happened so frequently in that church, and I've talked about it before. But, but I watched the people. I watched the people, Brother Brandon. The minute somebody came down for prayer, you know, people would be praying with them. Different ones would gather around and pray with them. And, but, but then something happened, and when the elder walked to the pulpit, and he grabbed that bottle... And he started down there. I watched people start poking each other and say, hey, he's got the oil. He's got the oil. In their minds, that church, I don't care what else they were thinking about at that moment, but right then they came together as one body and they fully expected that the moment he anointed that person with oil, God was going to perform a miracle. And I watched it happen time after time after time. Why? Because the church was functioning as a body. Not a bunch of scattered members, but a body. I, 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 I 
taught this principle when I was pastoring in Colorado. I'll never forget this night. It was an amazing night. I, I, I taught this principle to the church about how the fullness of God dwells in us as a body if we'll just come together. And, and we had somebody there that night. His arm was in a sling. I, I think he'd thrown his shoulder out or something and he couldn't hardly move it. A lot of pain. Had another man there that was seeking the Holy Ghost. We'd been praying. We'd prayed for him. Anointed him with oil. Nothing happened. The, the person was seeking the Holy Ghost. Nothing happened that night. And, and, but, but when I got through teaching and we'd prayed in the altar for a while, I, I stopped everybody. I said, wait just a minute. Stop. If we're going to function as a body, a body's not focused on 20 different things at one time. If we're going to function as a body, here's what I want us to do. I said, here is this man, his arms in a sling. He needs a touch from God. And I said, right now, I don't care what other need is in this building. I don't want anybody praying for anything except this man. And I want every Holy Ghost-filled saint of God to just forget everything else except this man and his need. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray one more time. In fact, I didn't even get the oil out. I just said, I'm going to stand right. We're going to pray, all of us together pray, for God to heal this man. There were no other prayers going on. There was nobody else focused on anything. But as one, we lifted our voice and said, God, would you send healing virtue down? Would you touch this man? And I'm telling you, I watched as his hand went up into the air and God healed him instantly. Hallelujah. The one that had been seeking for the Holy Ghost, when God healed that man, after we got through rejoicing, I said, now, here's somebody that needs the Holy Ghost. We're not going to be praying for healing right now. We're not going to be praying for you to get deliverance right now. We're all going to pray together as one. We're going to bind together. We're going to pray together. And we're going to believe God's going to fill this person with the Holy Ghost. I didn't lay hands on anybody. I stood behind the pulpit. We all began to pray. The Holy Ghost fell, and they started talking in tongues. I'm telling you church the devil's business is to distract us and divide us but if he can get us to come together if he can get us to function as a body my hands go where my feet go well and you know where my hands and feet go where my mind directs. Well, praise God. You know what happens when your mind is somewhere else. Right? We've all done that, haven't we? We're thinking about something else and walk into a wall. Right? Because our body's going somewhere our mind is not thinking about. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of spiritual walls that we run into because we're not really connected to the head and we're not really following what the mind of God is for that particular moment. Church, listen, this is another reason why I've said time and time again, don't wait until church is over and everything's dismissed and, and folks are talking to come down here and ask for prayer. I'm happy to pray for you anytime. Don't misunderstand me, but I'm telling you, at the moment when the Holy Ghost is moving, at the moment when God's Spirit is in the house, that's the time to respond. You gotta get together with the rest of the body. You gotta learn to move with the rest of the body. And when we do, then the fullness of God begins to operate in us just like it operates.
freedom in the body of Christ. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. The church is. I mean, Jesus Christ, when he walked on earth, can anybody deny that he was the seat of God's authority? What did he say? Folks like to quote Matthew 28, 19, but there's not that many that quote verse 18. He said, all power or all authority is given unto me. He was the seat of God's authority on the earth. Hallelujah. And so is the church. Now, I'm going to move on because I don't have much time left. And I still got a lot of ground to cover. But let me show you something. Again, comparing the new Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church. Revelation 21 verse 14 says this about the new Jerusalem. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Oh, so the new Jerusalem is built on 12 foundations. And the foundations that it's built upon have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem is built on the foundation of the apostles. What about the church? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And are built upon the foundation. We're built upon the foundation. Of the apostles. Of the what? Of the what? Of the apostles. And the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I'm telling you, this brings us back. He chose 12 apostles because 12 is the number of authority. You want to know where the authority of God rests? It rests in the message of the apostles. He said, Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all. Jerusalem is my mama, not Rome. Rome's not my mother. Rome is not my spiritual mother. Hallelujah. In fact, I'm not going to tell people to be born again by following the Roman road. I'm going to tell you what road you need to follow. It's the Jerusalem road. And the Jerusalem road, when they asked Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? In Jerusalem, the apostle that Jesus chose said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the Jerusalem road. That's the path we ought to be taking. That's the way we get born again. Rome is not my mother. Well, praise God. I don't follow Rome's baptismal formula. Rome's the one who changed it. 300 years after Christ started telling people, no, 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 we don't want to use that name. We want to just use the titles, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. When Jesus clearly said, baptize in the name of the Father. Father's not a name. Son's not a name. He said, use the name. But Rome came along 300 years after Christ and said, let's start using the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. No, no, no. You've got to find out the name. 
Brother Jared, you're still here, right? You've helped me many times in Africa. I didn't intend to go here, but come on. Come help me. Come help me. Come help me. We do this in Africa. By the way, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, because, you know, I'm getting old and forgetful, I got, I got word yesterday that some of the preachers that I've taught went and conducted their own doctrinal seminar in another city. They baptized 67 preachers in Jesus' name. They've got another 31 that are waiting on them. Right at 100 people that are going to be baptized because these people got the truth and shared it. Hallelujah. So, here's what I tell them. I tell them, look, I want you to pay attention now to what's going on. Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. All right, let's try again. Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. Three strikes, you're out, right? Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. Brother Jared, go stand in the foyer. Now let me ask you a question. Is he obeying me? What's he doing? He's repeating my words. There is a difference between repetition and obedience. Thank you. Jesus did not say repeat after me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He said go baptize in the name. If you want to know the name, you've got to search the scripture and find out what the name of the Father is. I am a father, but that's not my name. You're a father? It's good to meet you, brother father. Huh. You're a son. It's good to meet you, brother son. Not his name, is it? What's his name? John chapter 5, verse 43. None of this is in the notes because I didn't plan to go there, but I'm here. Praise God. John chapter 5 and verse 43. We're going to find out what the name of the Father is. It's not Jehovah. It's not Elohim. That's not his name. What's his name? John 5 and 43. I am come. Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name. He said, the name that I came in is my Father's name. What name did he come in? Jesus. Jesus. So what's his Father's name? Jesus. You know why my name is Riggin? Because my Father's name is Riggin. Jesus said, I came in my Father's name. So the name of the Father is... Jesus, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, this should be simple, we should know this, but I just like to make sure nobody has any questions, Matthew 1 and 21 says, and she shall bring, she shall bring forth, forth a son, and thou shalt shall call Jesus. his name Jesus, so the name of the son is Jesus, John 14 verse number 26, what's the name of the Holy Ghost, it's not Holy Ghost, that's a title, it is a ghost or a spirit, of the Holy One. That's a descriptive title, but that's not the name. John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Comforter, but the comforter which is, the, which Holy is Ghost, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. So what name did the Holy Ghost come in? So the name of the Father is Jesus, and the name of the Son is Jesus, and the name of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. So if you're going to obey Matthew 28, 19, you don't repeat the words, you obey, you baptize 
in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord have mercy. I didn't intend to be here right now, but I can't help it. You know that. After 21 years, you know that. I can't help it. I can't help it. It's just in me, and I love it. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now look, look. I have taught, I have taught and taught, and I teach in these seminars. Brother Jared can confirm it because he's been there with me, but I've taught time and again that if you're, if, if you want to interpret a scripture, always find another scripture. And secondly, you need the mouth of two or three witnesses. If you can't find two or three witnesses, the scripture's not wrong. The way you interpret it is wrong. Now, if we should be saying the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost when we baptize, I have asked all over Africa, I've asked all over America, I've asked all over a lot of places that I've been through the years. And I've asked all I want, if you've got Matthew 28, 19 as your first witness, where is the second witness? Show me just one more verse of scripture where anybody said those words when they baptized or when they were baptized. And I'm telling you, even those with theological degrees are not able to provide me with a second witness. It's nowhere to be found in the scripture. There is no place in all the word of God where anyone ever said those words when they got baptized or when they were baptizing someone else. You don't have a second witness. Therefore, your interpretation of that verse is wrong. I'm telling you, we ought to baptize saying the name of Jesus, that that's what Jesus meant. In fact, he said in the name, singular, no S, and I've checked it in all the languages, wherever I go, in Botswana, in Malawi, in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, wherever I've been, I've asked them, read it in your language, read it in your Bible, tell me, is the word name singular or plural? It is singular. There's only one name that applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's only one name. Well, hallelujah. Amen. So if I'm interpreting it right, then I ought to be able to find at least two or three witnesses. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2 and 38. Acts 2 and 38. Are you awake this morning, Sean? Can you count? Okay, all right. Took a little while to think about that one. Not well. You can count to seven or eight, can't you? You can at least count to as many fingers as you got, right? All right. All right. If you have to, pull off your shoes. We at least get, we at least get to 20, all right? All right. All right. So Acts 2.38, that's one, all right? What does it say? Then Peter said unto them. Peter said unto them. Repent. Repent. Be baptized, be baptized every one of you in the, of name of in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ for the remission of sins, and, shall and the you shall the receive Holy the Ghost. gift of the Holy Ghost. Now he said, repent and be baptized. How? Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ. So there's witness number one. Hold it up there so everybody can see, all right? That's witness number one. That's, that's witness number one. Now, all it takes is two or three witnesses. Let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse 16. Yet he was for as yet he, that is the Holy Ghost, was fallen upon none of them. Only they, only were, they baptized. were baptized. How? 
of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. That's two witnesses. That's really all that's required to establish a doctrine. But I'm not done yet. Acts chapter 10. Let's go to verse number uh, 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name in of the name the of Lord. the Lord. Who is the Lord? We only have one Lord as Christians, and his name is? So he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. There's three witnesses. That seals it in the law. But I'm not done yet. Go to Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Now these people had already been baptized once. This is crucial, because I have people say, well, I already got baptized. But was it done in the name of Jesus? Let me show you how important that is. These people have been baptized by John the Baptist. But look at what happens, Acts 19 and 6. And when Paul had laid his hands and on when them, Paul had laid his hands the upon Holy them, Ghost came on them, the Holy Ghost came on them. And they spake with tongues and, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. When he laid his hands on them, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. We went, we went to the wrong one. I'm sorry, verse 5. And when they heard when this, they, heard this they, were they were baptized in the, in the name Lord Jesus. of the Lord Jesus. That's witness number four. We got an extra one beyond what the law requires. I'm telling you, it's settled, my friend. Everywhere they got baptized, it was in the name of Jesus. But I'm still not finished. Acts chapter 22. And verse 16. And now, why tarryest thou? Why tarryest thou? Arise, be Arise baptized. and be baptized. And wash away thy sins. And sin. wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. So how many have we got now, brother? Brother Sean, we're at five witnesses. We've got five, and I could keep going. In fact, let's let's go to uh, let's go to Acts four and twelve. Let's just throw that in the mix here. Acts chapter four and verse twelve. Neither is there salvation. Neither in is other. there salvation in any other. For there is none other name. For there is none other name under heaven. Under heaven among men. Given among men whereby, we, whereby must we must be saved. I am here to tell you there is no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Yes. There is no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Well, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Go over to Ephesians chapter number 3. And read verses 14 and 15. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. All right, I bow my knee unto the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I'm here to tell you, it, it's all in the name of Jesus. Praise God. It's all in the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do everything except baptism. Oh, that's not what he said. What did he say? Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm telling you, I get those pastors up and I start asking them, do you believe in, in, in seeing your prayers answered? Yes, we do. Well, when you pray, do you close it saying, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. 
They said, no. I said, why? Well, how do you do it? They said, in the name of Jesus. Why do you do it that way? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. I said, all right, do you believe in healing the sick? Yes. When you heal the sick, do you say be healed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? No. What do you say? In Jesus' name. Why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. So you believe in casting out devils? Yes. When you do it, do you say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost come out? No. In fact, they'll laugh at me. So what are you laughing about? We do it in Jesus' name. Why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. So why is it you pray in Jesus' name and you heal the sick in Jesus' name and you cast out devils in Jesus' name? But when you get to the water, you don't want to speak his name. I'm going to tell you what the problem is. It's a long-standing tradition that was handed down from Rome. It's time we get back to the Jerusalem path. It's time we get back to what the scripture says. It's time we do it the Bible way. And in the Bible, it was always done in the name that's above every name. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You know, I, I stopped because I, I was quoting that scripture in Africa. And one of the pastors came to me. He said, you know, we've quoted that scripture over and over. But we've always said that that name is above every sickness. And that name is above every demon. But he said, it finally dawned on me. It's not just that. It's above every name in heaven and earth. So even any name we could find that was used for God in heaven, the name of Jesus is above that. It's above Elohim. It's above Jehovah. It's above El Shaddai. It's above Jehovah Jireh. It's above El Elohim. It's above every other name that could be applied to God. I'm telling you, there is no name like the name of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Hallelujah. Amen. My time is up, but I like to tell them in Africa, look, 37 years ago, in fact, we just celebrated an anniversary. 37 years ago, March the 3rd, she asked me to marry her. That's not right. She begged me to marry her. No, that's not right either. That's not right either. 37 years ago, March the 3rd, I asked her to marry me. 37 years ago, because I loved her. And I loved her then. I love her a whole lot more now. I really didn't even know what love was 37 years ago. I thought I did. But I love her a whole lot more now, almost four decades later. But I'm going to tell you this. If when I proposed, she would have said, yes, I'll be your wife, but... I'm not taking on your name. You know what my answer would have been? Now, I know in today's society, that's kind of a popular thing. Today's society, folks get married and wife keeps her maiden name. But I'm going to tell you, it wouldn't have worked in my life as much as I love her. If she would have refused my name, I would have said, you don't love me enough to be my wife. And yet here we are, the bride of Christ. 
And we get ready to go into the water and we say, I don't want to take your name. Just Father, Son, Holy Ghost is good enough for me. No, no, you need to get in the water and take his name. Well, hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. I like to, I like to, I like to say it this way. I, they really got excited, especially Pastor Simon got real excited when I, I don't know, if, I don't think Brother Jared was there that, that time. I think this is before he started going, but I got to talking about what happens at baptism, and I likened it to the whole marriage. And I said, you know, there was a point in that wedding ceremony where the preacher looked at us and said, I now pronounce you man and wife. At that pronouncement, she took my name. And it was at that pronouncement that he said, you may now kiss your bride. Well, hallelujah. And what a kiss that was. My first time to kiss my wife. And I'm going to tell you something. When you go down in water and the preacher says, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ, that name is applied to you at that moment. And I'm telling you, God kisses the earth right then and there. I've watched these preachers over and over again. They've baptized hundreds of people saying, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, it was just a ritual. Nothing happened. But Brother Jared, I'll never forget that night how we were there in Malawi and those four men came by night, kind of like Nicodemus, and we took a, a, an inflatable swimming pool and set it in back of the place where we were staying. And, and they came and we baptized them in Jesus' name. I'm telling you, Heaven kissed the earth right there. Those men rejoiced and shouted and talked in tongues. They didn't feel that when they said Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But when the name of Jesus was applied, when that name was applied, there was a power that came at the invoking of that name. And we've watched it, we've watched it, and we've watched it. Praise God. Amen. We've, we've had them come up out of the water and just have to lead them off somewhere and just let them worship God. They're lost in the spirit as the power of God is there. Sometimes I have to physically drag them out of the way so that somebody else can come down out of the baptistry. And, 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 and it's, it's an exciting thing. But the real exciting thing is they've baptized hundreds of others and never felt that one time. They'll tell you that. If you're sitting in this room here this morning and you were baptized Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I think if you'll be honest, you'll admit you didn't feel anything when that happened. There was, there was no glory of God that met with you. It was just a ritual. You got put under, you came up. The only thing you felt was wet. But I'm telling you, it's not like that when you get baptized in Jesus' name. Something happens. Something happens. Jesus then transfers authority. You become a part of his bride. You really become a part of his body. And therefore, there is authority that comes. You've got full authority to use that name. Everything changes when you're baptized in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. We are built. Ephesians 2 and 20. That's, I got way off. Sister Becca, I didn't make it very far today. We still, I've still got a lot to talk about in the choosing of these 12. Oh, Jesus. Um, 
Ephesians 2 and 20, we're built on the foundation of the apostles. Of the apostles. That's why John said, He that is of God hears us. He that is not of God will not hear us. He said, this is how we tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's what he said. This is, this is uh, 1 John 4 and verse 6. If you want to put it up on the wall, we won't take time. Brother Brandon, you don't have to look it up, but, but I think Brother Josh can get it up on the wall for us fairly quickly here. 1 John 4 and 6. This is what John said, we, that is the apostles, are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John said it is the apostles' doctrine that determines what's true and what's in error. So I don't care about all the years of tradition. I want to go back to truth. I want to do things the way the truth says they need to be done. Hallelujah. And the truth shows they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, asked them a question. He said, was Christ divided for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, that sounds to me like whoever was crucified... He said, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So whoever was crucified, that's the one whose name we need to use in baptism. Hallelujah. And it was Jesus Christ that was crucified for us, and we need to be baptized in his name. Let's stand this morning. Oh, Jesus, I've got so far to go. <laughs> so much, so much, so much. Praise God. So, Lord willing, next lesson, we'll come back to Mark 3, verses 14 and 15 again. <laughs> and we'll take another look at those 12 men. There's so much there still that I want to cover. So much beauty in the scripture about the apostles, thank God for the apostles' doctrine. Thank God for the apostles' doctrine. Amen. They got it right. They got it right. A lot of doctrines floating around that people wonder about, are they real? And we should wonder about them. But the apostles got it right. The book of Luke, chapter 24, says that Jesus opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. The apostles didn't make a mistake about what the scriptures meant. They understood the scriptures. They understood the scriptures. And furthermore, Jesus told them exactly what to preach. He said, preach repentance. Preach remission of sins in my name. Preach the promise of the Father. And that's exactly what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Repent. Be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins. Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Hallelujah. I want to follow their example. We're built on the foundation 
of the apostles. Praise God. Let's lift our hands. Let's love the Lord today. Hallelujah.